It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Wednesday morning, the 25th of May. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. Ten years ago, PayPal announced it was to recruit a 1,000 employees in Dundalk by 2016. We are rolling out the opportunity for people to have a career with PayPal, not to just a job. I'm very clear on what I want to hire. I'm very clear on the people that I'm going to hire. But I'm also very clear that I want to give the people of Dundalk a career as opposed to a job. And that's a very different prospect when you look at it. What is a career and what is a job. I want them in for the long haul when I hire them and I want to keep them and maintain them in, in Dundalk and with PayPal. What we wanted to know in 2012 was how much was PayPal getting by way of government grants and did government grants influence the decision to set up in Dundalk? decision? Has there been a policy change Absolutely. in the last... The idea has been paramount to supporting mm. me in this all of these efforts. So, are they part of, of this decision? Absolutely. And they, we have a great partnership with the IDA. Um, Barry O'Leary has supported us significantly through all of this. Um, uh, Antishuk has supported us significantly through all of this. Um, so, yeah, they have a huge part to play. PayPal's decision came on foot of uh, the 2012 Government Action Plan for Jobs, which encouraged multinationals to create jobs in return for substantial grants. Has there been a policy change of any sort in the last 12 months that led to this decision? No. I'm sorry? No. No, nothing at all. Uh, So, uh, I mean, this decision could have been made if PayPal was ready to expand its operations 12 months ago. PayPal's Louise Phelan speaking to me in 2012 and it was all sweetness and light in 2012. Fast forward to today, 2022, and we don't know if the government grants have dried up, but we do know that 307 jobs are to go, 172 of those in Dundalk. This is an issue that was raised in the Dáil yesterday by Sinn Féin's Rory Murakou. Thank you, Deputy uh, Morku, and, and I know the news will come as a real shock uh, to the staff working at PayPal's Dundalk and the Blanchetown offices and their families and communities. The Tánaiste has spoken uh, directly with the PayPal leadership team and expressed his disappointment at the decision and the impact it will have um, on all their employees. The company has assured uh, the government that PayPal remains committed to Ireland and the remaining 2,000 staff here, the, the 
the company will continue to employ. Consultation with, this, with staff will begin this Thursday and we understand that all 307 redundancies will be initially sought on a voluntary basis and a good redundancy package will, ma will be made available. I'm very conscious of the, of the workers and their families receiving this news today and I know that this is coming on top of what has been a very difficult couple of years for, for everyone and will be very, very worrying. That's the Government Chief Whip, Jack Chambers, responding to Sinn Féin TD in Loudoun East Mead, Rory Murko in the Dáil yesterday. Rory Murko is on the line with us now together with uh, his uh, Fine Gael counterpart, Fergus O'Dowd. Good morning to both of you and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. Uh, it seems as though Jack Chambers was mistaken there uh, in that clip, Rory Murko. Uh, PayPal telling us uh, this morning that they'll be consulting on compulsory redundancies and will not be offering voluntary redundancies. That's it. Look, we were all shocked when, well, well obviously here, people were shocked when they discovered their jobs was, were, were gone and there was nobody who had any notion that this was going to happen beforehand. So it was, it, it all happened yesterday morning. And then, like, personally, I, I, I couldn't make sense when Leo Bradford and then it was repeated by Jack Chambers, the fact that they were saying these jobs were, um, that the redundancies were going to be voluntary. Terry, you couldn't imagine it was going to be when you're talking about 370 jobs. I couldn't see where the room for redeployment was going to be. And that has since been corrected. Now, those big questions, how that happened. But look, that's not a, a major part of uh, the conversation. What I had also asked Jack Chambers was clarity in relation to, because look, I, I spoke to the government liaison person um, for PayPal um, like an, an awful lot of Oireachtas members would be for Britain and Ireland. And he spoke about the fact of, I think he used the term collectivisation, where mm. some of these jobs would be taken into other um, parts or units within the PayPal family, and that some of them, w the jobs mightn't exist. I accept that can happen with technical firms where you can have AI solutions, but I'm thinking the vast majority of these jobs, particularly if we're talking about credit collections, seller risk, due diligence, and, um, you know, you're, you're talking about probably a huge amount where there will be need for human interaction. So people want to know where these jobs are going. There is, the rumour mill obviously is talking about outsourcing to far-flung parts mm. of the world. You're also talking, if we're talking about specifically what they term UK credit collections, and um, that particular unit, just to take one, for example, has huge KPIs you know, is really yeah. even has, like within... Where the labour uh, is cheaper. Yeah, well, well th yeah. that's what we're reckoning on. And in fairness, yeah. you asked the other, um, I suppose, grade A question, which is what is the story? We're 20 years on. Are, are we talking about the fact that... Um, some of these grants and whatever yeah. may be drying up. Well, we were listening to PayPal falling over themselves to talk to us uh, 10 years ago. Uh, but it's, it's ironic that they won't talk to us today. They've refused an interview. Uh, but they were falling over themselves to talk to us uh, in February 2012 uh, when they were about to recruit 400 out of 1,000 people. Uh, and 10 years on, because quite often these grants last for 10 years, uh, they're letting 300 people go. Yes, yes, yes. No, and look here. There's commentary in relation to share price. We, we, we you know, we all know that that's an utterly artificial um, situation. We all accept that we are in constrained um, financial situation due to the war in Ukraine, post-COVID, post-Brexit. Actually, I asked a very specific question in relation to Brexit and was told that that had no impact in relation to it. But look, what what I said 
to uh, Jack Chambers and what I put out there in the public domain, and I'm going to repeat it here, is the fact that what we need is, we'd like to know what the government engagement was from the point of, uh, that they discovered this, whether there had been a discussion before, the night before, as Hmm. Um, as the spokesperson said, they have to do on a statutory basis. Well, maybe Fergus um, O'Dowd has been able to get but, some of that kind of information. But, but, but that hopefully he has. But hmm. the other thing is we need serious engagement from the IDA and the government in relation to the commitment into the future. Because I know promises hmm. have been made. Promises were made to me. I'm sure they were hmm. made. Well, promises yeah. were made 10 years ago, but they don't last forever. And you can't keep uh, funding these companies, uh, I suppose, uh, we, we if that's what happened. And we lost 131 jobs last yeah. year, and now we've lost 300. But how, how many more jobs are we going to lose exactly, as exactly. the time goes on, as the funding dries up? Fergus O'Dowd, uh, have you any inside information on this? I don't at all, no. Okay. I've been in touch mm. with the Thomas's office, and like Rory, I was speaking to the company, and I'm deeply concerned, and I'm shocked because the Thomas's statement is very clear that he, he states that he was told it would be voluntary, and now that they're going to be compulsory, that is that is appalling and it's entirely obviously unacceptable to everybody, but they are a private company and they do employ still over 2,000 people in this country, so I think we must all use our influence obviously with the government mm-hmm. and with the IDA to get clarity and to, if you, you just mentioned there about grants and so on or support for companies, I mean we're entitled to clarity on that and if there's any way in which the government can assist, I've no doubt that they will. Mm. But if the company has made the decision, and they are all over the world, Michael, they're in China, Crimea, yeah, India, Israel, Japan, yeah. Pakistan, and so on. So, you know, and the world is unfortunately yeah. heading into a recession. So, a multinational. But there were great incentives put and, in place for multinationals course, and, yeah, so. and, and grants so. and uh, re, uh, research and development, R&D mm. grants, and all sorts of, under that 2012 action plan Uh, and in February 2012 uh, they were recruiting 400 people Uh, practically 10 years to the day afterwards they're letting 300 go Uh, it certainly is a coincidence at best I think Michael the truth of the matter is nobody wants jobs to go least of all people who are in them least Mm. of all the IDA least of all the TDs we don't want them to go. We want to hold on to them. Mm. And if there's any way that can be done, I've no doubt every effort would be made, uh, even you know, in this issue around the unacceptable compulsory nature of these yeah. redundancies. But if you, but were, wor- if you were, end- if you were, sorry to cut across, if you were working in PayPal, uh, tell me if this is a reasonable question or, or not, because people working there now will be worried about their job security. Are they going to be for the axe now? Uh, and if not, will they be for the axe further down the line? Uh, because uh, the question I want to ask you is, if they're letting go the jobs that they were getting grants for in 2012, will they be letting go... We've lost one of our our listeners there. Um, Will they be letting go people who they took on in 2013 when grants from then uh, uh, run out in 2023, in 2014, in 24, and so on? Uh, I'm not sure who is still on the line, but if Uh, you're Rory Amurku is still there. Uh, do, Do you think that's a legitimate question? Oh, it's more than a legitimate question. Like that's what we're. That's the entire question in relation to the engagement. What is their commitment? And then we need to know why these have been, jobs have been moved, where they have gone. I accept that there may be some of the jobs, a very small amount, that don't exist anymore. That's one thing we can put that to one one side. One side. 
Um, but we need to know that. Also, uh, uh, like I, I'm, I'm getting quite fed up of having to have conversations, and I'm not blaming the Tanishta for this. You know, in relation to, uh, we need to ensure, obviously, that these people get good packages. And mm. um, now, I think there is a number of people have been have got information, and I think like the consultation is going to begin. But there's a starting point talking about the two week statutory. I think plus six. Now, people may be getting. Uh, different packages. I think this is to mm. kick in from June 27th. Yeah. I think there is an option. Well, time will tell what they mean when they say enhanced redundancy packages. Yeah, uh, well, l- l- what, what, what I'd also like to say is, though, because national pen is an issue that I brought up with mm. where we had been told they would be attractive and generous, and they weren't. And, and I'll be honest, I went back to the yeah. Tornista and um, he went back through the idea to mm. National Pen because they were literally offering the two-week statutory plus 1.65 up to 15 years and mm. then 0.65 after um, after 15 years. Now, his office went back and had contact and, and in fairness, they did come back to me and said that they were not particularly happy mm. now that they were still chasing it, but sometimes, right, I, I accept that government hasn't the power to do okay, that. Okay, but there has but to be a question them. over all the multinational jobs and if the grants dry up, do the jobs go with them? Uh, Fergus O'Dowd is back on the line. The question I was sure. going to put to you, Fergus, was if sure, uh, the jobs uh, that were created in 2012 go in 2022, would you be concerned that the ones that were created in 2013 go in 23, the ones in 2014, in 24 and so on? Well, I can't answer that because obviously. But would you be concerned if you were if you were working in paper? Concerned, Michael, yeah. but we have to be real here. And the sad news is that this is a private company. It's a multinational. We attract them in, and they increase in numbers or they decrease. That happens everywhere. It's happening all over the world. But if they're here, the question I'm asking is: but if I'm they're not, here for I the grants can, and then they go I'm when the grants dry up, uh, well, where are we going well, well, with we this? Because Dundalk, it's a disaster in Dundalk when you take everything into account with the cost of living and and, and so on. Uh, but if yeah. this is going to spread past PayPal into the other multinationals, well, let's, well, let's, in let's examine that. And I'd be very happy mm. to work with Rory and my other colleagues to, to, to identify all those issues. But, but at the end of the day, we want PayPal to stay in Dundalk. I know there's job losses. What they said to me and they said to, I believe, Rory and other people, that they're absolutely remain committed to Ireland. And if they have over 2,000 people, notwithstanding this appalling vista mm. that is facing these workers, mm-hmm. still employed in our country, I want to encourage that company to stay here and to keep those people in work and to put more investment when the time comes. But because we live in an open world economy, we can't we can't force the company to do anything. We can attract them. And I agree if there's an issue around grants, so we have to address that if we can. But the reality is. You know, the reality is that they've made this decision mm. and mm. there's very little we can do about it except apply you know, the rules and to make the strongest possible representations, which which is already being done. There's nobody I know hiding that. behind yeah. the no, door. No, I, know, I know that. In, in fairness, I don't think anybody would argue with that, but I, I, I have to leave it there for the moment. We will hear much more about uh, this in the coming days and weeks and thank you both indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, local TDs for Louth and East Meath. Ferguson Dowd of Finnegale and Rory O'Murku of Sinn Fein. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM.
Well, as you know, medical lab scientists are looking for pay parity. Uh, they want an 8% pay increase to bring them in line with what others are being paid who they say are doing the same job. Uh, they went on strike for a day last week. Uh, they were on strike yesterday. They were due to uh, be on strike today again and uh, had announced that there would be three days further strike action next week. Uh, but that industrial action has been put on hold for the moment at least. Uh, and I can assure all of the workers uh, that the, the, the government very much wants to see uh, engagement in the WRC uh, if the WRC does not prove, um, uh, if, there, if a resolution the can't be found there, what we would like to see then is potentially uh, a move into the Labour Court. And That's the Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, speaking uh, yesterday uh, when uh, the strike action was due to go ahead, asking uh, that uh, members of uh, the MLSA would go into the WRC or indeed into the Labour Court if uh, that didn't suit them. I would urge all parties uh, to use either the WRC or potentially the Labour Court uh, to bring about a resolution of this and the full um, arm of government then would be uh, involved in that process uh, in terms of the full continuum of government through its different departments and agencies would be involved in that process uh, to get an outcome uh, once and for all uh, of this particular issue because I think we want to get we understand the role that the, that the medical scientists play we understand the impact uh, of this disruption you, on patients as well very concerned about that Time is up, uh, so we want to get this resolved we believe it can be if we can get a proper basis for engagement with the, with the WRC or the Labour Court. That's uh, the Taoiseach, Michal Martin, and like Stephen Donnelly before him, asking that uh, the MLSA would uh, go into the WRC, the Workplace Relations Commission, or into the Labour Court uh, if uh, it uh, was uh, deemed to be better. And it seems uh, as though there's been some progress uh, because exploratory talks are underway now. Uh, and uh, as a result, today's strike action has been called off. In about 20 minutes' time, the Dáil will debate uh, a private member's motion on this, uh, which will uh, deliver that 8% pay difference between the members of uh, the Medical uh, Scientists, uh, Lab Scientists Association and indeed uh, Biochemists. And it'll also uh, call for those places that are not filled, 20% of all posts not filled, uh, to be filled and to uh, rebuild testing capabilities and capacity in the public health service to end the outsourcing of testing so that it would be done by these people who are taking this industrial action very important to the health service and it seems almost every stream of it. That private member's motion would be put forward by people before profit. Its spokesperson on health is uh, Gino Kenny, uh, who's a TD for Dublin Midwest and on the line with us. Good morning to you, Gino and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme. I'm sure you welcomed this breakthrough in the dispute because there was a, a lot of uh, patients uh, who had uh, appointments and procedures cancelled as a result of it. Yeah, that's correct, Michael. And, you know, the main thing is that uh, it's gone to the Labour Court. Uh, there will be negotiations between the HSE, Department of Health, Deeper, and the union, and hopefully it's a result. Um, we've, you know, this is an ongoing kind of issue, pay, pay issue for the last 21 years and how it's not been settled, you know, till now is quite incredible considering like the vital role that medical scientists play and all, they're almost kind of the invisible workers in relation to our health service and obviously over the pandemic, uh, they were absolutely vital cog 
in fighting the kind of COVID nineteen. So it's a situation where it shouldn't it shouldn't have happened. Um, and obviously the the amount of disruption that happened over the two day strikes was not at the fault of the the workers themselves, but obviously uh, the HSE, the Department of Health, in relation to the pay issue and the pay the main crux mm. of the issue is pay parity between biochemists and medical scientists. At the moment, there's a there's a difference between eight percent. And the medical scientists have said, look, this was 21 years ago, it was recommended by mm. a kind of an expert group on medical laboratory technicians that they would have the same pay parity between biochemists. And that never happened for all sorts of reasons. And that's the reason why they've been out on strike in right. the last number of weeks. But it seems very unfair because it was agreed to. Uh, and yeah. uh, 20 years on, here they are still begging uh, for what was agreed to 20 years ago. Uh, do we know what it would cost, though? There's 2,100 members, 2,100 members of the MLSA who are sure paid by 8%. It's a very small amount. I think it's less than maybe 7 million per year. So uh, that's not an exact, excuse the pun, the science of that, but it's very in around that. Yeah. Uh, so in the bigger scheme things, Michael, it's tiny. It's a tiny amount of money in relation to the overall... Well, about uh, 24 billion on health, isn't it? 24 billion. So yeah. it's and tiny, we're, we're, tiny. We're learning this week you can't do anything. You can't get a blood test, let alone anything else, exactly. uh, without exactly. these guys. And, you know, the service itself is absolutely vital. And you've seen, you know, over the last number of days, in relation to when scientists have didn't want to go on strike, but they did, uh, in relation to their pay claim and other issues around retention and career opportunities. But when um, they went on strike, the, the amount of you know disruption, not because of their actions, but obviously of, of you know inaction in relation to the government's um, organisations. Um, so it's, it shows you how vital service it is. It's absolutely important that you know medical scientists are kept in the country. Um, because if you're if you're in a situation where you know you're getting le- less than you know your other colleagues, you know some people won't stay around for that. You know, mm-hmm. and they can understand why there is one in five places of medical scientists are not are vacant at the moment. So over twenty percent of medical scientist positions are vacant. Now no. that's not sustainable at all. No. So that has to be that has to be addressed immediately mm-hmm. by the HSE and, the, and deeper. This isn't resolved uh, and far from it. Uh, we're talking about exploratory talks uh, at this stage, uh, which you would have thought would have happened before the first uh, day of strike action. They're obviously uh, dedicated to the work and very conscientious people. Uh, speaking uh, to Kevin O'Boyle, who's uh, the chairperson of uh, the group based in Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital yesterday, he was saying that they wouldn't, if, if this was to escalate, they wouldn't strike for any more than three days in one week because it would yeah. be just too dangerous for patient safety. And he said they wouldn't compromise that and they had put in all sorts of uh, systems in place to make sure that patient safety wasn't compromised during the industrial action period. Uh, but he he also told us that they did have talks last week in the WRC uh, but the HSE, he said, were just shrugging their shoulders. They didn't have anything to say. They, 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 they didn't really understand the claim, it, it seemed. Yeah. Well, maybe, yeah. I mean, that's obviously concerning. And as I said, the workers have have an enormous amount of public support. I was on the picket line yesterday, and their morale is very, very kind of good in relation to the workers themselves. Um, they have every right to, you know, put the pay claim in. That this is goes back over 20 years, but um, the HSC and the Department of Health need to step up to the plate and address this issue and resolve it. Because if it's not resolved, the workers will go back out and strike. And we've seen over the last number of weeks 
what dis- that disruption kind of causes, where people were kind of electoral s- surgery, you know, procedures mm-hmm. that just don't can't go ahead because of you know workers that are not in situ. So that can't, you know, that that's yeah. not sustainable. But also, what's not sustainable is the workers not being paid properly, and obviously addressing the issues of attention in relation to career opportunities and so forth. So that mm-hmm. has yeah. to be addressed. Uh, otherwise, then you know the workers will be back out on the picket line again. Yeah, and every time a, a government representative talks a, a, about these workers and the dispute, uh, they make a, a point of saying how valuable they are. They're wonderful. They're brilliant, uh, and so on. Uh, they seem to always mention how they got us through COVID and so on and so forth. Uh, and a, a, a vital cog in the HSE or the health service wheel, if you prefer. Uh, what do you know about how government is going to respond to the people for profit motion today? Well, they've they put an amendment, Michael, to the the motion, and obviously the motion is not binding. Um, so you know they have the numbers. So I presume the, the the amendment will be carried. But we'll see what happens later on. There's there's a vote later on at nine o'clock in relation to the motion itself. Uh, I think some parts of the the motion the government will agree, but obviously they don't agree with the the issue of I suppose the process and what's going on in the background. But, yeah. you know, if you're talking about six months, I can slightly understand, but we're talking about 21 years. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. you know, you know, I, I, I'm I'm sure your listeners will agree that the this, the union itself and the, the medical scientists have been more than patient. This is a union that's in, in existence the last 65 years, I think, and they've only gone on strike twice. I've never even actually heard of the union until a number of weeks ago, Michael. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it shows how low profile the workers are and and so forth um but they do an amazing job in relation to our public health service that keeps us safe from kind of all these kind of i suppose things that go on in, in health and that's that's important that they're properly their, their issues are properly addressed okay we'll leave it there for the moment uh, your motion is uh, about to be debated in uh, the yeah. doll and i'm sure we'll be hearing much more about that through the course of the day and thank you indeed for joining us ahead of that that's uh, gino kenny people before profit td for dublin midwest michael, michael reed, reed on, on lmfm, LMFM. Uh, the response in uh, to this country to the displacement of Ukrainians and indeed uh, to uh, the Ukrainian crisis in Ireland, uh, refugee crisis in Ireland, has been almost typical uh, in that uh, the Irish have proved themselves want to be, once again to be very, very charitable and have opened uh, their hearts and their wallets in many cases uh, to try and help people. Let's speak to Helen Martin, who's uh, the chief executive of the Charities Regulator. And a very good morning to you, Helen Martin, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, I, I'm sure uh, that's something that uh, you've been very happy to see, as I think most of us have, uh, but uh, you have some words of caution for both people who wish to help and those organisations that are, are trying to help refugees. Yes, good morning, Michael. I, what we're trying to, I suppose, say, uh, say to everybody out there is that, look, everybody is moved by the plight of, of what's happening in Ukraine. And similarly, when we had a crisis uh, around COVID as well, everybody wanted to get involved. And what we're asking the public is to make sure that when, whether you're donating money or whether you're volunteering yourself, so actually if you're giving up your own time, as thousands and thousands of people do, make sure that you're doing that with a registered charity, but also that you're doing it with a charity that actually has already set up and has 
has the structures um, in place to actually do what they're trying to do. Mm. So, you know, we've 11,500 roughly charities in Ireland at the moment um, and they all have very, very different charitable purposes. There's huge diversity there and what we're saying to charities is that it's not as simple as just deciding overnight that you're going to suddenly assist, we'll say, with the crisis in Ukraine or Mm. previously it would have been with COVID. All charities are set up for very specific charitable purposes. They're set up to do very specific things. I've given the example before of a charity that's set up, for example, to help people with disabilities. Mm. And they receive those funds and the donations and the time of volunteers to pursue uh, that charitable purpose to help those people who have disabilities. So um, that's what people have given their their money and their time for. So you can't simply turn around to the charity and decide that, okay, helping people in Ukraine is a really good cause. We're suddenly going to do that. Mm. Um, You you can't turn around as a community, in other words, and say, God, we have to do something. Let's pull together and uh, get organised and uh, put something in place to help people. If that is what's happened uh, in some communities, uh, what situation are are those people in now? Or to put that another way, are, are, are they breaking the law or what is the result of that? Well, charities in Ireland, it is a regulated sector, so you can't engage in charitable activities without being registered. Um, but really what this message is about is trying to say to people, look, can you link in with existing charities that already have the systems and frameworks set up? For example, if you're dealing with vulnerable children or vulnerable adults, you're absolutely required to have things like a child safeguarding policy or a vulnerable person safeguarding policy in place. Established charities will know this. They will have all this in place. They're registered with the charity's regulator um, and therefore they're adhering to the charity's governance code. So they'll have all the structures in place to make sure they're run well. But crucially, that they're in a position to um, to ensure that their staff are safe, that their mm. volunteers are safe and that the people they're actually trying to help are, are safe as well. And that there should be so vetting really in place. what we're talking about. Um, in certain cases, there is there is vetting, and charities will be fully aware of that. And that's really what mm. what I suppose we're trying to get across. If you're not registered with the charities regulator and you're not familiar with the charity space, you you may you may find yourself in difficulty. So it, what we're trying to say to people is, look, get out there, definitely get involved. I know child, charities mm. are always looking for volunteers, um, but just make sure that it's with an established charity. And look, all of these are on our website. You can see our register of charities is there. You can check very, very easily. Um, and it's much easier to get involved, uh, Michael, with an established mm. charity rather than trying to set up your own charity overnight. Right, you're not it's trying to put people off. You're just saying to them there are rules in place not. and you have to follow yeah. the rules. And the rules are there for a reason and that's to protect people. Yeah, it, look, that is exactly it, Michael. We, we do not want to discourage anybody. Um, charities really do need volunteers and charities do also need donations as well. But it's just to make sure that people understand, as I said, it's a regulated place um, or space that people are operating in and the established charities and registered charities will be up to speed with all of that. Mm. Um, and then if you've got, you know, some of your listeners may be involved in charities and you may be thinking, well, we'd like to do something. Yeah. And what I would say to those people is, please, please, please look at your governing document. Your governing document tells you exactly what you can do. Um, and it's very important that you stick to, to what you're permitted to do and what mm. you've collected those funds from. It's not to say you can't change you absolutely can you can add to your purposes you can change things but these things do take time and you also would want to be as people who are in charge for charity we call them charity trustees and what you would want to make sure is that you've actually gone through full risk assessment for any activities that you're planning to get involved in and that's really really important and again registered charities will be fully fully aware of that and 
if you had a, a raffle, let's say, to build a new clubhouse, you couldn't take that money and use it to help accommodate Ukrainian refugees. Well, that, that's exactly it, because this is all about donor intention. You know, why do people donate their funds? Um, and, you know, sometimes you will come across situations where people are involved um, in a charity or, or maybe another not-for-profit or sports organisation or whatever. Um, and there might be a feeling that once you collect the money, you can do what you wish for it as long as it's a good cause. Um, but that's not actually the case. When people give you their money, they're, they're trusting you. That's why we call people charity trustees. They're entrusting these funds to you that they will be spent in the way that you said that they, they would be spent. So that's another thing to be really careful of if you're collecting funds as a charity, that if you collect funds for a specific purpose, the funds have to go to that purpose. Okay. and do you want to hear from people who have come together and organised to help Ukrainian refugees or working as a charity of one sort or another, uh, whether they're involved directly or indirectly? is that people link in with established charities you know mm. but if also if someone has a concern and um, for example if, if someone is out there or a group is out there collecting money um, and uh, people have a concern about that that maybe they're not a charity then we absolutely want to hear about that and um, so if anybody has a concern you can actually you can file that with us on the charities regulators website charitiesregulator.ie and um, you can raise that concern with us and look we, we do approach these things sensitively Michael you know we don't mm. we don't just run in there and, and, and uh, you know, uh, tell people, oh, this is against the law. What we do is try and bring people into compliance and make them understand the framework that's there and to operate within that. Okay. Uh, as you say, you're not trying to put people off. Uh, you're just trying to make sure that every everybody is looking after everybody else in the best possible way. And that's what those rules are about. Exactly. Exactly, Michael. Okay. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Helen Martin is uh, the Chief Executive of uh, the Charities Regulator. Now, let's uh, go to the phones. Jimmy in touch with us wondering why is it that petrol at one station is one ninety nine per litre and at another it's one eighty one? He says he hates people getting ripped off. It's pure greed. Uh, I'm sure that there's many explanations uh, for that, Jimmy, uh, but perhaps uh, the lesson in it for all of us is to shop around. Uh, Seamus Dock says he feels sorry for those at PayPal losing uh, their jobs, many of whom will have mortgages and bills to pay. There needs to be more invested in job creation and also enticing new jobs into the area or else Dundalk will become a commuter town. Uh, a text uh, from somebody who says I'm a PayPal employee. I'm sitting here at work listening to this. Uh, that's uh, a text that came into us when we were discussing it with Fergus O'Dowd and Maria Muraku and our caller says we've been told nothing no more than a five minute announcement that we got yesterday it's 100% compulsory there's no voluntary redundancies and they're giving us no information at this stage anything we know we're hearing it from the media and our caller uh, PayPal employee says it's ridiculous thank you for your text too Michael Reed on LMFM now it's hard to believe, but 85 million pictures and videos depicting child sexual abuse were reported worldwide in 2021 alone, and many more went unreported. Child sexual abuse is pervasive. That's according to the European Commission. And they say that the COVID-19 pandemic made the situation worse with the Internet Watch Foundation noting a 64% increase in reports of confirmed child sexual abuse in 2021 compared to the previous year. What to do about it? Well, the Commission has a lot of proposals. Many of them are being objected to. Uh, on the grounds of civil rights. Uh, Let's speak to 
to Fiona Jennings, who's Senior Policy and Public Affairs Manager with the ISPCC. A very good morning to you, Fiona, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. 85 million pictures and videos in one year alone, and behind each one of them, uh, an atrocious story. Yeah, good morning, Michael. Um, yeah, so I suppose it might be helpful, first of all, to maybe understand what we're kind of talking about Um so these would be images, so whether they're, they're still images like photos or, um, you know, videos or some types of depictions where children are being sexually abused, so sexually tortured, you know, sexually exploited. Um, and these images, they're, they're generated, um, like, so, they're, so they're, they're being produced and then they're being um, distributed all around the world to different people um, and as we said there, that number is mm. it, it, it's just mind-boggling to try and to, to try to understand this. Mm. And I take it many of the eighty-five million that are produced in one year, and then I mean you duplicate that uh, on a yearly basis, uh, that they're available here on the world wide web. Yeah, so they are, and some of these images, you know, they may be newly generated images, and when we say generated, like newly produced images, are. Some might be images um, that are a couple of years old as well, but yes, you know, they're still the images and still, you know, the evidence, if you want, of children who have been abused. And often, you know, with victims and survivors, just knowing that there's still images of their abuse out there online for people to access can have severe consequences and can, you know, can re-traumatise them as well. Mm. Yeah, and we quite often hear that there's very little that can be done, um, that you can't regulate what's happening in Brazil uh, if uh, you're living in Ireland and vice versa and around the world and all the corners of the world. But this is where the European Commission uh, is coming up with proposals. And some of them are are very dramatic in terms of putting an onus on internet providers uh, to regulate and report. uh, And uh, indeed, that those people who are using uh, some of uh, these internet sites and social media sites uh, could have their personal information scanned uh, and looked at by these companies so that they could uh, set out to police what's happening? So I suppose the first thing is, and you touched on it at the start, you know, why do we even need this? Well, we need it because the problem has, it's just growing exponentially. Um, And, you know, children and young people, you know, some people don't like it, but it is a fact that, you know, they are using, you know, internet-enabled devices and they're living their lives more and more online. And the, the the pandemic just showed us that how, you know, everything moved online, their education, their socialisation. Um, and it was wonderful to have that because, you know, without it, they wouldn't have had kind of many other outlets. But like in the real world and the online world, there are people out there who want to um, exploit children, um, sometimes um, for different reasons. Um, so the, the proposals then from the EU Commission ISPCC certainly welcomes them. Um, what's in place already is um, there is actually a voluntary agreement in place already. So what this proposal is proposing to do it is to actually put it on um, a sort of more secure legal framework um, so that, you know, for companies themselves as well, that they better understand, um, I suppose, their responsibilities in terms of 
detecting these images um, and and reporting them on. Well, it's only working to uh, a point, isn't it? Uh, because the Commission say that that voluntary uh, system for detecting and reporting uh, child sexual abuse has resulted in 95% of all of the reports uh, that they've received on child sexual abuse, this is in 2020, that it came from one company. Yep, it came from one company and that company has to be commended as well for actually deploying, you know, the, the technology that is available to search for these images and to report them on. And that there, I suppose, lies, you know, the problem with a voluntary approach is that it is up to the companies themselves to decide whether they're going to use that technology or not mm. to search for these images. So the EU Commission's proposals is that, you know, it'll be a, it'll be mandatory for these companies, you know, to, to have um, a sort of risk assess their, their, their products and ser- or their services, first of all, um, to see if that activity mm. takes place and then to put... Um, to put um, the, the, I suppose, the proper um, systems in place to detect and to report um, the, the images that they find. And I, I take it some companies won't like that and some won't like it for some reasons different to reasons that other companies won't like it. Some companies, for example, won't like it because of uh, the time and cost involved in monitoring what's going on on their platforms and others won't like it because they're probably making money out of it. Yeah, I mean, like, some of the larger companies would certainly be better set up for it and indeed, you know, are, are involved in the voluntary agreement or signed up to the voluntary agreement as it is. Smaller, you know, companies coming online, um, you know, they may not have the, the resources or, um, you know, the, the personnel to put into this. Mm. But this is a global problem that we can't ignore. And we have to understand what the end game is. And that is, you know, trying as much as possible to prevent children from being abused, to prevent children from being re-traumatised whose images are out there. Mm. But also as well, that often when companies um, detect these images and report them to law enforcement, often there's a good chance that the children in the images are actually identified. Mm -hmm. So therefore then they can be rescued, they can get the support that they need, and then sometimes then the offenders can be identified as well and, and be brought to justice. OK, well, that won't go down very well with paedophiles, will it? Uh, because, uh, obviously, they want this material available to them. Yeah, there certainly is, um, to, not to be crass about it, mm-hmm. but there certainly is a market out there for it. Yeah, well, and, 85 um, million pictures and videos online in one year, there's a huge market for it, which is pretty hard to stomach, it has to be said. Yeah, and there's still that there's still there's still a, a, can be a misunderstanding out there sometimes as well in terms of you know people viewing these images they don't necessarily see them you know as viewing it as actually part of the abuse do you know what I mean that they're not necessarily a perpetrator the perpetrator of the abuse yet they do have a key role within the whole um, ecosystem of sexual abuse material online as well and it's very important that you know we talk about this. Um, and that I know your show in particular yeah. is good for covering this particular issue and um, that we talk about it and that we don't shy away from the fact, well, you know, you're viewing the image, but you may not feel yourself that you've got a part in this, but you actually do play a role in it and a prominent role in it. Uh, is it sometimes a case that people are viewing it 
innocently that they think they're looking at adults. I, I mean, it, it's very obvious if you're looking at images of young children, young children or young children. Uh, but uh, I mean, if you're looking at a, a 15 or 16, 17 year old girl, uh, perhaps uh, you could uh, have assumed that uh, they were of age. I mean, there's that, so many different reasons that, that the people seek out this material. Um, and again, it's something that, you know, we can't put it down to say, well, this is a typical person who seeks out this material because evidence has shown us that it, it's all cohorts um, and people in all different walks of life who actually seek out this material. But what we want to try and get the message out there is that, you know, you, you do play a role in the demand for this material. And in turn, that plays a role then in more and more children being abused and for their abuse to be recorded and to be put up online so that people can access it. Um, and that's not right. It's not. It's wrong. It's where, um, you know, the children who are subjected to this type of abuse in particular, it can have many, you know, wide ranging effects on them for many years to come. Mm. I'm sure. Uh, and these concerns that you have, uh, Fiona, uh, do they outweigh the concerns uh, that people have uh, about privacy? So so this would be kind of the main argument, I suppose, against um, the, the EU Commission's proposals um, in terms of privacy. And this is a conversation, I suppose, that, that, that has been happening for the last couple of years. Um, and while we recognise, you know, that they have a legitimate concern around it, I think there's a huge piece of work to be done in terms of educating people around what these technologies actually do. The EU Commission's proposals have specific safeguards in place so that these tools will not be mass surveillance tools, that they will specifically be deployed for this particular reason, that is for searching child sexual abuse material um, within communications. But if your online activity can be surveyed, uh, it's possible that it will be surveyed, uh, even though you've been uh, acting in a way innocent uh, to the intention of this. I, I mean, I think the argument could very easily be if you have uh, worries about privacy, don't look at child pornography and you'll have nothing to worry about. But people will say, no, if you have the tools to look at people's activity, uh, regardless of what it's intended for, it can be used for all sorts of reasons. But the EU Commission is clear in what it is stating and that mm, this, this, this particular type of technology, it can only detect child sexual abuse material. Um, so without getting too technical mm, into it, that, yeah. you know, there's, there's some technology out there where it can, let's say it would have a database of um, known child sexual abuse material and that's recorded. So therefore, then um, this technology, should that pop up again on your phone or my phone, that it's able to give an alert. Um, so these tools, um, they're detecting material that's already out there. Mm. So they're quite specific, um, I suppose, in what they actually, their, their capabilities okay. really are quite specific and what they can do. Right, well I'm just wondering uh, because I saw TJ McIntyre of Digital Rights Ireland quoted in the Irish Examiner saying uh, it involves looking at the contents of literally every message. It is indiscriminate mass surveillance. Uh, you don't agree with that obviously. I don't agree with that in terms of that the proposals coming from the EU Commission are quite clear in that what it will be specifically deployed for, as in the detection of child sexual abuse material. So it's not going to be 
you know, an individual reading down through, you know, all of Michael Reed's texts or all of Michael Reed's, you know, online chat conversations. Yeah. That's not what it's about. It's about scanning for this particular type of material where the end point is that it reduces the amount of this material that's available and in turn it can identify victims and support vict- victims as well. Okay, you're watching this quite closely, I'm sure, Fiona. Uh, yeah. w- w- what's your sense about how it's being received? Uh, is there support for the proposals from the Commission or are, are the concerns for civil rights greater? Oh, Fiona, have I lost you? <laughs> Okay, well, time will tell uh, what the answer to that question is. Uh, But um, perhaps it's something that you want to talk to us about. Uh, Do you believe uh, that uh, your activity online should be monitored in this way that the European Commission is uh, proposing that they can see if you're accessing child pornography or inappropriate uh, stuff on the internet there that uh, is probably leading uh, to child sexual uh, abuse or do you believe uh, that uh, your online activity should be private and that it shouldn't be surveyed in such a way you're welcome to let us know as always Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, if you do your shopping in Don's or Supervalue, Tesco, Lidl or Aldi, or all of them, uh, you might be interested in our next item, which is about a report called Under Wraps, What Europe's Supermarkets Aren't Telling Us about plastic and it looks at plastic in each of those five stores and indeed supermarkets right across Europe as part of the Break Free from Plastic movement which is a collaboration of 20 NGOs. One of those is the Sick of Plastic campaign in Ireland and it's been surveying the supermarkets in this country and let's speak to Angela Rutledge from Voice Ireland who is the campaign lead for Sick of Plastic Good morning to you, Angela, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. We've been talking about plastic and that we're sick of plastic for some time. And some effort has been made to reduce the amount of plastic and packaging that goes with supermarket products. How are we faring? Good morning, Michael, and thank you very much for having me. Well, this report is the first of its kind um, across Europe analysing what retail giants are doing Um, to tackle plastic pollution and we're not doing so well. So here in Ireland, of the top five supermarkets, um, only three of them responded, Tesco, Lidl and Aldi and Dunstores and Supervalue or Musgraves didn't respond at all. So it just shows a complete lack of ambition and I suppose, um, you know, even across Europe as well, you're seeing differences in how the retail giants are performing. um, Okay due to lack of harmonisation of legislation. Although the EU is working on that, it's just that the supermarkets are not responding with the type of ambition that they need to tackle the the plastic crisis quickly enough. Okay, well, you were hoping to score each of the five supermarkets out of 100, uh, zero being bottom uh, and really having plastic on everything, I suppose, and 100 having plastic on nothing, and you wouldn't expect either to be the case, uh, but you've uh, scored Duns and Supervalue at zero because they didn't respond, uh, so you can't make assumptions. Tell us about the other three if you would. 
Exactly. So Tesco received three out of 100, Lidl received 16 out of 100, and Aldi an impressive 61 out of 100. Gosh, Although yeah. Aldi in the UK and Ireland did much better than it did elsewhere in Europe. But so there were three markers, transparency and performance. So basically actually measuring how much plastic and other packaging is being produced and, and how, how much it's being reduced by commitments. So having ambitious commitments to try and reduce the total volume of plastic being produced and then support for government policy. And, and really across Europe, like the, the scores were quite low overall, like, um, uh, you know, um, not really much greater than 30 out of 100 in a lot of cases, which just just goes to demonstrate mm. where we are in, in relation to tackling the plastic crisis. Well, we probably did relatively well uh, on a European basis because uh, I think the average across the five uh, was 16 out of 100 uh, but two had to be discounted uh, and uh, when you compare that to the other countries it probably uh, was good but that doesn't mean that the score is good because it's a, a bad performance right across Europe is that right? I think some of the supermarket giants here in Ireland are making more efforts than others and you can see that in the scoring mm. but in other supermarkets, as far as I can see, there's a complete lack of ambition and, you know, putting forward false solutions like um, having more recyclable return stations or increasing um, recyclability or offering things as reusable when previously they weren't reusable, but they've just been rebranded um, is not good enough. We Like we have a waste hierarchy and it's reduced the amount of packaging, first of all, mm. then make it reusable if we have to have the packaging and then recycle. So we really need to see these supermarket giants investing in complete systemic change and having, you know, refill and reuse in, in, available widespread, not just mm. for the people that can afford to go to boutique minimal, minimal waste. Well, g- give us some examples uh, and maybe uh, you can give them from what you witnessed in Aldi because the score there is way above the other two. 61 out of 100 compared to 3 out of 100 in Tesco and 16 in Lidl. So what is it that Aldi is doing that impresses you? Aldi would have had very specific responses and they would have you know, been measuring the amount of packaging that they are producing and would have had targets about reduction and being able to calculate and put their finger on exactly where they're at, you know, so doing it scientifically. So that would have really seen them jump ahead. Another interesting example that I've seen myself in Lidl is the likes of, you know, reusable bottles for in-store orange juice and efforts that they're making like that. So um, like it can be simple or it, it can be difficult, but either way, we're going to have to see this this paradigm shift in the way we consume and the supermarkets need to stop waiting for to be regulated and start taking control of this themselves. Okay, but uh, is this what people want? I mean, just take that example of uh, bringing back your bottle and filling it up. Are people actually doing it? Yeah, well, there's widespread support for the deposit return system and and we will have that scheme in Ireland, hopefully by the end of this year, if there's not too much opposition put up to it by retail giants, because um, there is widespread support for that amongst consumers. It's something that we're used to. We used to always have deposit return before, so mm. that will be brought in in Ireland for aluminium cans and plastic bottles and will be very welcome. And, and the best the best way of doing that is to, ha- to have the retailers assume responsibility for collecting the returns. Um, so that is one thing that is coming down the tracks very shortly that will be 
will hopefully improve our recyclable rates. Um, so Europe is requiring that we have a 90% uh, you know, 90% collection rate for those plastic bottles with, mm. um, I think it's 30% recycled content. So that's coming down the tracks and that is very positive news. Okay. So we have the circular economy bill in the doll at the moment, mm. really hoping to make that bill as strong as possible um, so that regulations can be made thereafter providing for um, for for measures that can basically tackle the plastic okay. crisis at the rate it needs to be tackled. It sounds as though you have to convince some of uh, the supermarkets and maybe some of uh, the supermarkets more than others that that is the case, that people want this uh, because I, I could be mistaken but I, I think uh, one of the theories at least is uh, that supermarkets and other retailers believe uh, that people like packaging because they think the product looks attractive and when they're attracted to it, they're more inclined to buy the one that they're attracted to than the plain old thing that's not in the package. Yeah, well, that's, well, that's interesting. We've And we've seen packaging become an issue over COVID and things like fresh bread being put back into packaging. Um, on the one hand, even even when it was discovered that there was no need for it. You still see that persisting. Um, and the argument goes that it makes it fresher and that it's more hygienic. On the other hand, um, some of the top smaller boutique retailers, and I spoke to one uh, owner recently, will actually take off the packaging off their fruit and vegetables because it will make it look more attract- attractive. Even if they are forced mm. to take it in with plastic on it, they'll take it off because they believe that it, you know people like to to really see what they're getting. and, yeah. um, okay, and Okay, but there, there's, there's also EU regulations, uh, I think, that prevent uh, the sale of loose eggs or, or, or bread uh, that's not in packaging. I'm actually not sure about the eggs. Um, I know that in smaller stores you can pick up your eggs um, and, and put them in a, in a cardboard box yourself or bring back your own cardboard box. Um, in relation to bread, I suppose like any anything else, it's a, it's a high-risk food in that it is not going to have anything further done to it before it's eaten. So you have to be careful about making sure that it doesn't get contaminated. But that can be dealt with mm. in other ways. It doesn't have to be about individually wrapping each loaf. It can be about having sneeze guards or putting it behind glass. So mm. there are ways of getting around that. I, 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 I'm sure that's the case. I think there's many of our older listeners, though, who will be scratching their heads saying, well, <laughs> we, we, we never used to package it. Uh, but uh, albeit uh, the case that that's uh, for health and safety reasons, there's no point in, in arguing uh, that case. Uh, but going back to this being consumer-driven, uh, Angela, if that is the case, does that feed into what some of these chains are doing? Because uh, some of these chains ha- have stores all across Europe in each of the countries. Uh, and you said that some of them are, are doing better in the UK and Ireland than they are, let's say, in the likes of Spain or Germany. I guess it, it comes down to management. Maybe it also comes down to consumer sentiment. But I guess, guess when you have such a large retailer and some of the some of these um, firms are like in excess of, with turnover in excess of 100 billion, so you're talking about country by country management, I guess, um, or perhaps it's consumer sentiment. Um, maybe here in Ireland, we're getting more used to things being packaged than we should be. Uh, we do tend to be further away from some of our fruit and veg, which is unfortunate. So um, maybe that is that is why, in some cases, mm. some some of these businesses are doing better than others. I don't actually. 100% no. Mm, I just mm. think it's it's interesting that the lack of harmonisation of the rules 
to date means that there is kind of a patchwork of results in each country mm. um, and within Ireland as well. Okay. Uh, and hygiene is possibly a consideration for people as well. And maybe that's uh, what the supermarkets have on their minds uh, in the same way uh, that you say that there could be uh, health and safety reasons about bread. Perhaps consumers are looking at fruit and veg thinking, I don't want to buy something that somebody else has had their dirty hands on. Yeah, well, of course, when it comes to fruit and veg, you're you're always advised to wash that when you bring mm. it home, um, and and you really would need to. Um, I think health and safety can sometimes be trotted out as a reason why we have packaging when we don't always need it. There are some products that are going to need some packaging, and the the idea is to have as much recycled content in that as possible, to be able to recycle it, um, or to be able to reuse it. But where there are a lot of situations where the idea of health and safety is just a quick fix. Um, and may, uh, there is also an argument, which is interesting as well, about how consumers purchase and they buy with their eyes and they like to see things that are yeah. plentiful. Yeah. And I think that yeah. that comes back to our own personal responsibility and our way that we have started to change our, our view of how we buy things. And we do need to look at that um, and perhaps have a communications campaign on looking at that. But it may suit some retailers and I you know I can't speak for them but I, I'm just suggesting that it may suit some retailers mm. to have things like bread or like cakes that previously weren't um, you know they're baked in house and they previously weren't put in plastic packaging mm. and now they are because they last a bit longer and it's less work for them mm. Absolutely. to just throw them yeah. all into a plastic box and leave them there and they yeah. can sit there for a couple of days then yeah. that's my experience in my local supermarket well, where they used to have only a, a smaller amount of cakes behind glass and now it's all out for you to help yourself and it's going to last longer you don't have to worry about it going dry uh, and the same with fruit and veg it will last longer when it's mm. in plastic um, and therefore you can have more of it and it can look plentiful but we really need to ask ourselves do we need that much choice do we need that much volume of stuff mm. being produced and then going to waste. Yeah, well, I, I know I always buy with my eyes, as you said, uh, and uh, I do look at, at products and think I don't want the one in the plastic. Uh, sure, that's mm-hmm. um, ridiculous Very because different. I'm sick of plastic, as you say. Angela, thank you indeed for joining us on the programme today. That's Angela Rutledge from Voice Ireland, uh, who is the campaign lead for the Sick of Plastic group. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Yesterday, an 18-year-old boy shot his grandmother at her home before going to a local school and shooting and killing 19 children between the ages of 7 and 9 and two of their teachers. Afterwards, a US Border Patrol agent shot and killed the 18-year-old. I had hoped when I became president I would not have to do this again. Another massacre, Uvalde, Texas, an elementary school, beautiful, innocent, second, third, fourth graders. And how many scores of little children who witnessed what happened see their friends die as if they're on a battlefield, for God's sake. They'll live with it the rest of their lives. There's a lot we don't know yet. There's a lot we do know. The parents who will never see their child again, 
never have them jump in bed and cuddle with them. <clears throat> Parents will never be the same. To lose a child is like having a piece of your soul ripped away. There's a hollowness in your chest. You feel like you're being sucked into it and never going to be able to get out. Suffocating. Uh, an 18-year-old has been shot and killed by American police after shooting and killing his grandmother and 19 children between the ages of 7 and 9 and two of their teachers. As a nation, we have to ask, when in God's name are we going to stand up to the gun lobby? When in God's name we do what we all know in our gut needs to be done? It's been 3,448 days, 10 years since I stood up at a high school in Connecticut, a grade school in Connecticut, where another government massacred 26 people, including 20 first graders at Sandy Hook Elementary School. Since then, there have been over 900 incidents of gunfires reported on school grounds. Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. Santa Fe High School in Texas. Oxford High School in Michigan. The list goes on and on, and the list grows when it includes mass shootings at places like movie theaters, houses of worship, as we saw just 10 days ago at a grocery store in Buffalo, New York. I am sick and tired of it. We have to act. An 18-year-old shot his grandmother and then 19 children between the ages of 7 and 9 and two of their teachers before being shot dead by American police. What are we doing? What are we doing? Just days after a shooter walked into a grocery store to gun down African-American patrons, we have another Sandy Hook on our hands. What are we doing? There have been more mass shootings than days in the year. Our kids are living in fear every single time they set foot in the classroom because they think they're going to be next. What are we doing? Why do you spend all this time running for the United States Senate? Why do you go through all the hassle of getting this job, of putting yourself in a position of authority? If your answer is that as this slaughter increases, as our kids run for their lives, we do nothing. What are we doing? Why are you here? If not to solve a problem as existential as this. This isn't inevitable. These kids weren't unlucky. This only happens in this country and nowhere else. Nowhere else do little kids go to school thinking that they might be shot that day. Nowhere else do parents have to talk to their kids, as I have had to do, about why they got locked into a bathroom and told to be quiet for five minutes just in case a bad man entered that building. Nowhere else does that happen except here in the United States of America, and it is a choice. It is our choice to let it continue. 
What are we doing? American gun laws uh, allow an 18-year-old to be in a a situation where he can shoot and kill his grandmother and 19 children between the ages of 7 and 9 and two of their teachers and being shot and killed himself by American police. The idea that an 18-year-old kid can walk into a gun store and buy two assault weapons is just wrong. What in God's name do you need a solvent for except to kill someone? Deer aren't running through the forest with Kevlar vests on, for God's sake. It's just sick. And the gun manufacturers have spent two decades aggressively marking assault weapons, which make them the most and largest profit. For God's sake, we have to have the courage to stand up to the industry. That's the American president, uh, Joe Biden. We also heard uh, from Senator Chris Murphy. Michael Reed on LMFM. We have work to do in protecting and reinforcing the peace in Northern Ireland that has existed for these 25 years. As always, we need to work together, the U.S., Ireland, Britain, European Union, and the people of Northern Ireland and their political representatives to find a space for where the planter and the gale might live in harmony. Instead, of two communities, one community with two traditions. The legacy issue as well should not be allowed to get in the way of what those families need to know about what really happened. That is a very important consideration. And so that everybody knows when they come to Washington, we meet with all the families regardless of their tradition because there was enough pain inflicted by both sides on the other that those families need closure in their lives. This is Congressman Richard Neal, who is uh, the chair of uh, the House Committee on uh, Ways and Means and part of his uh, address yesterday to Shannon Aaron. Whether it was the Guilford case or Bloody Sunday, when I talked to those families on the day that Prime Minister uh, David Cameron apologized on the floor of Commons, whether it was Birmingham or whether it was the Raymond McCord case who has been to my office that asked that America intervene on behalf of his son, we need to know, along with the Finucane family as well. I want to thank Mark Daly for that invitation that is he extended, but as he lobbies, he always brings these issues up as well. Richard Neal speaking in uh, the Senate yesterday and uh, Mark Daly, who we heard mentioned there, Senator Mark Daly, the Cahirlik of Shannon Aaron, joins us now. And uh, a very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. I think Richard Neal uh, showed unwavering support. I think that actually was a turn of phrase that he, he used for the Good Friday Agreement in his address yesterday. Absolutely, yeah. and he was there with a bipartisan delegation of Republicans and Democrats, including his counterpart in the Ways and Means Committee, who's a Republican, tex- uh, a Republican congressman from Texas, uh, Kevin Brady, who has a similar message when he meets with members of the diplomatic corps from the United Kingdom and when he was over in London. So there is unity in Washington where there isn't always unity in Washington in relation to Ireland and in relation to the Good Friday Agreement, but I think it was important that Shannon Aaron would extend the invitation to Chairman Neal, who is not only the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, which is a committee which will decide on any future trade agreement between the United Kingdom and the United States. And he has been consistent, as 
as you've heard and your listeners would have seen mm-hmm. over the last few days, um, that there will be no trade agreement. If there is any doubt about the Good Friday Agreement uh, or any impact by the British government uh, through their Brexit activities that would affect the peace process and that is the same for the Republicans as well so Chairman Neil is also the chairman of the Congressional Friends of Ireland and as I said yesterday during his speech that he was championing the cause of peace when peace was unimaginable and Chairman Neil has often played a role behind the scenes in terms of organising meetings and discussions which would not normally take place only for his input so not only was his input important was vital to securing the peace in Northern Ireland but as we know peace is something that has to be protected and has to be nurtured and we are going through another difficult phase in terms of the the, the British government's proposal on the amnesty which is undermining the Good Friday Agreement which they signed but also the Brexit negotiations and the agreement which they signed there which they are now threatening to tear up uh, those agreements which mm. again they, they negotiated and signed okay. so, but is Richard Dale or this delegation partisan because uh, they were warmly received in uh, the Shannon but they weren't as warmly received elsewhere well I know they said that they had a very frank exchange of views with uh, the the British government and their officials and mistrust and, and others uh, but they were putting forward the point of view that they are the honest brokers for the Good Friday Agreement they're a party to it as much as uh, as our government or the British government and yeah. their job is to make sure that everyone abides by the agreement and everybody knows including the British that they are breaching the agreement by bringing forward the proposed legislation uh, in relation to the amnesty proposal and that they're undermining the peace agreement uh, by making a decision, bear in mind that they signed up to the agreement, the agreement on Brexit, and they're now threatening to take their own actions, which would undermine uh, the, the, the agreement over the border, and mm. the border would remain open as it is uh, today, and uh, that is something that the US government will not uh, support. And yeah. the reason they're not going to support is any trade agreement into the future, there has to be clarity over what are the arrangements between the UK and between Northern Ireland and the and South of Ireland. So that is why they they want to support. But peace is their main objective. Okay, well, if you exclude Britain and parts of Northern Ireland, you will find very little argument with what you've just said across 28 countries. Um, and in terms of the European uh, approach and uh, perception of all of this. Richard Neil probably was uh, in line with that. Uh, but was he helpful or unhelpful? Because when you look at the reaction that's come particularly from unionists, uh, it, it really seems as though he's been stoking a fire. No, I mean, like what he's doing is he's laying out the position of the US administration and saying that as guarantors of the Good Friday Agreement, you need to speak truth to your friends uh, and the US uh, and Ireland and the UK. Mm. They see us both as friends uh, and they're being the honest broker and saying, we're guarantors, you're breaching the agreement, we're not going to allow you to do that and we need you to, to, to make sure that you don't because it will undermine the peace agreement that you signed up to. So while it is causing some level of upset, especially in the UK and uh, the unionist community as well, are not happy with what is being said what they're doing is they're putting forward their point of view in the same way as the unionist community are putting forward their point of view. But bear in mind, you know, 56% of people in Northern Ireland voted against Brexit, so they didn't support uh, what is being done. 
uh, and they were also saying, again, it wasn't a huge issue in the election, uh, and that was seen time and time again in the opinion polls. Uh, and it's about making the agreement that the UK signed up to work, um, but they're now doing the opposite. They're tearing it up, and, and, and that would cause chaos, and chaos is not something that Northern Ireland needs at any time. Mm. Uh, well, there's a lot of chaos uh, at the moment uh, and uh, that looks set to continue for some time to come uh, because there's not going to be any quick solution to this uh, and it would seem almost inevitable that there won't be any government in Northern Ireland for the next six months and uh, that uh, the British government will continue uh, with this position which really is trying to negotiate uh, with a gun to the European head, isn't it? Well, I think that's kind of one of the things that was said by members of the delegation. It's like going into negotiation, putting a revolver on the table and saying, let's negotiate. You know, that's not how you should be doing international diplomacy. Um, And that's what the British government are doing. Uh, And they need to stop that because they have negotiated the Good Friday Agreement. They negotiated the Stormont House Agreement. This is in relation to the amnesty issue. And they're tearing up that and they're tearing up the agreement that they made in relation to Brexit and the protocol. Right. Uh, and can, can, can the US afford not to do a, a trade deal with oh, the UK? Oh, they can, yeah. I mean, yeah. the, U, mm. the, like, the, the UK, in terms of the size of its economy, is so small relative to mm. other countries. That can, are can, can the UK afford not to do a trade deal with the US? I mean, they have uh, they have a trade deal with the US, but it's it's not it's it's under the EU uh, negotiated trade agreements, um, and and like that means that anything the UK gets is going to be less favourable terms than that, and that's what's happened. Every agreement that the UK have managed to negotiate since Brexit have been on less favourable terms than they had with the EU, because your negotiating partner on the other side knows that you're in a weak position that you have to get a trade agreement uh, and um, they're going to exploit that to their own advantage. That's, that's international commerce, you know. Mm. You've, got to, you've got to be able... That's why Ireland being in a big trading block with all the expertise that brings allows for us to negotiate trade agreements that would, uh, on, on our behalf, being negotiated by the European Union, that we wouldn't be able to negotiate at all because nobody wants to spend the time, effort and energy okay. negotiating with an island that has, like, mm. you know, seven million people on it. Well, well there was no argument yesterday and uh, I don't think there's any doubt that Richard Neal was uh, preaching to the converted, if I put it that way, and probably as a result got uh, the longest round of applause I think you said ever heard in Shannad Aaron. Thank you for joining us, uh, the Kohirlik of the Shannad Mark Daly. Uh, and maybe we'll have enough time to hear some of that applause as we hear his uh, final comments to the Shannad uh, before we leave you today. Anniversaries I know are very important in Irish history, more so as we commemorate the centenary of the Irish Republic. We also applaud a very small country that has given so much to world civilization. Any anthology offers, of course, competing narratives, but through conquest, subjugation, occupation, famine, Gautamore, risings, revolutions, and civil war, always an unbreakable spirit marked by optimism. For such a country to have produced James Joyce in the 100th anniversary of Ulysses, the great writers, the monks who saved the ancient scrolls through the Dark Ages, and contributions to art, music, literature, and civilization, theater as well, it's remarkable. And in the diaspora, never to forget the candle in the window of the president's residence that we witnessed again this morning that always welcomes back the immigrants. Yates simply described it as the indomitable 
Irishies. And I would remind all, as Yates did, that though the leaves are many, the root is one. Thank you from the United States of America. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.